Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 102. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and we begin this week's episode with Green Ice, the second instalment in the Tales of the Rose Knights by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestvold, currently being published bi-weekly at dailysciencefiction.com. Jay Lake lived in Portland, Oregon until his death in 2014. His short fiction appeared regularly in literary and genre markets worldwide, and Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards, and in 2015 he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth Nestfold has published widely in science fiction and fantasy, her fiction appearing in many different markets. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards, and in 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Jay and Ruth's collection of short stories, Almost All the Way Home from the Stars, is available at Amazon and via iTunes. You can learn more via the links in our show notes. The story is read for you by myself. Enjoy. <laughs> Green Ice by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestvold The moon is mistress of the tides, which means she controls the blood of men, for their red-washed veins flow with salt, echoing the sea that is mother to us all. When she calls men to her, they rise to her attendants. When she refuses them, they drown in tears of sorrow. Women, though, follow a flow and rhythm of their own, still in Sister Moon's power, but free from her compulsions. So it was that among the greatest of the Rose Knights serving under the Moon's banner in her wars with the Army of the Sun were the Flowers of Womanhood. Green Ice stood strong among them as the Green Knight, her armour a shade so pale as to be nearly white, her eyes the piercing colour of a mountain meadow in spring, her hair silver-white as the streams that flowed downward into the cathedral forests. Her power and her weakness were both this. Green ice 
had found that her heart loved more than she could bear. Long had she been wed to a scribe who practised his trade in the silver-stoned alleys of the moon's great city at point of sleep. To him she came back from her battles and caravans of hunts. Of him she thought when she slept alone on high crags, among ravens and the bones of owls. For him she did everything in her life of war, as he did for her in keeping a homely house, filled with friendship and love and fine food, always ready when she appeared in her dented armour and lined face, ready for his love. Yet, on the high roads, or among the ranks of moon's haunted forests, or in the twisting byways of seacoast towns, green ice found again and again that she faced handsomer men, who save for the sword's edge between them might have been her lovers. That swell within her heart disturbed her terribly, challenged her loyalty to the scribe at point of sleep, and so drove her to a battle fury unmatched since the passing of the storied Black Madonna. Women under arms she slew with the casual dispatch of a hound against a fox. Men under arms she slew with the vigour of a woman at threat. A woman of great loves, and a soul that burned brighter than the enemy sun she was, and thus ever at war with herself. A trail of bodies told the story of her pain, until the day she was bested. If he was a knight, she did not know his name or colours. He had a battered wooden shield, a notched sword, and a seat that would have set her old riding-master laughing. When she chanced upon him at a bridge outside Botolph's town, he was watering his horse. "'Ho!' the green knight said, her blade as always ready. "'Swear now your allegiance to Mistress Moon, or draw and defend.' He looked up, sad eyes the colour of a storm under his little pot helm. She realised this was just some soldier, of middle years and too many nights around the ale-cask. "'I will not swear, madam.' and neither will I draw upon you. Then he tugged the reins to lift his horse's head from the creek, and turned to ride away. Battle fury rose within her. Green eyes spurred her own mount, a fearsome destroyer three times the size of her opponent's broken nag, and made to run him down. He shifted in his saddle as she overtook him, and by some supple move she had never expected, got inside her guard and threw her down. In an instant she was on her back in the cold, cold stream, his notched blade stuck where her gorget met her breastplate. He flipped her visor up so that their faces met. "'Do you yield?' he asked, his voice sad as his eyes. The word never died on her lips. Was pride worth her life? The moon might say so, but the moon did not have freezing water soaking her quilted undertunic, nor metal pricking her neck. His eyes never left hers. Unlike you, I will ask again. She had never been looked at quite that way, the Green Knight realised. She had seen love, lust, terror, death, and a thousand other things in the eyes of men. No one had ever just looked at her, attending her every syllable as if her thoughts were of utmost importance. She had never felt this, and it made her ache, filling her words with a fire she had not known she possessed. Was loyalty to her scribe worth her life? And still I ask a third time. His voice was still sad, but filled with the patience of oceans. I... Betrayal lurked on her tongue. Betrayal of what of whom she could not say. 
the moon? Her scribe? Herself? She became afraid of her words, more afraid of what she might say than she was of the metal pricking her throat. She had never been one to be compelled. Enough. His free hand touched her lips for a moment, and then his blade was withdrawn. The sad-eyed soldier turned his back to her, mounted his pathetic horse, and rode away into the wilderness. She lay in the stream a while, until the cold threatened to steal what the low-running water could not. Then the green knight rose and slowly divested her armour, bundling it to pack upon her great horse. Her blade she sheathed, tying off the pommel as she rarely did. In time she followed him into the wilderness, away from the road to point of sleep, wondering with every step whom she betrayed and whom it was she served in taking this path. He drew her forward by the skein of words caught in her throat, the power of her heart burning until her ribs ached and her eyes threatened to burst with tears. We intend to air the remaining stories approximately once a month, so check the Triple F website regularly. Our feature story for the week is Against the Enroaching Darkness by Aliette de Bordard, set in the same universe as her recent novel The House of Shattered Wings, the first book in her Dominion of the Fallen trilogy. The story comes to us courtesy of Grimdark magazine, and we encourage you to visit their website for more fantastic tales. Aliette lives and works in Paris, where she has a day job as a systems engineer. In her spare time, she writes speculative fiction. Her Aztec noir trilogy, Obsidian and Blood, is published by Angry Robot, and her short stories have appeared in markets such as Clark's World magazine, Asimov's, and The Year's Best Science Fiction. She has won a Nebula, a Locus, and a British Science Fiction Association Award. Against the Enroaching Darkness is read for us by Andrea Richardson, a British singer and actress with extensive stage and film performances to her name. She began narration and voiceover work in 2014 and enjoys using her existing skills in a different way. You can find her online via the links in our show notes. So here we have Against the Enroaching Darkness by Aliette de Bordard. Eugénie lay in state in the small, pathetic chapel that they'd never had time to finish, her eyes towards the blank, unpainted ceiling. From time to time, the distant echo of a magical conflagration shook the room, and dust fell on her chest, covering her clothes in a fine white layer that slowly and irretrievably obscured the insignia of House Lazarus. Victoire would not cry. She'd done so earlier in the privacy of her room, but now it wasn't about love or grief. Merely what would carry them forward, what would ensure the newly founded house would survive, the death of the founder. Most houses, she knew, didn't. And Lazarus, that bastard child of Eugenie's ideals, her place of refuge, her small band of dependents, patiently gathered through the years, was no exception. Footsteps behind her, noiseless and graceful. Amaranth, coming to stand by the side of the coffin, her smooth, ageless face creased in thought. The fallen watched Victoire, not the body in the coffin. Disapproving? Amaranth had always been hard to read, even in the days when she'd been Eugenie's right hand. 
She would have died before seeing the house go weak, Amaranth said. Victoire shivered. Except that her death made the house go weak, didn't it? House Lazarus was small and leaderless. In ordinary times that would have been cause for concern, but now that House was fighting House in the streets of Paris, now that Draken and Hell's Toll had been defeated and taken apart. They're assembling outside, Amaranth said. Of course, of course they would. It had been her orders, hadn't it? You should have been head of the House, Victoire said slowly, carefully. Amaranth shook her head. She wore cream, a flowing dress with lace and ruffles that looked almost out of place at a time of war. She chose you. You, Victoire struggled, you loved her. Amaranth cocked her head. Didn't you? There were no words, really. Eugenie had always been there, reaching out to the grimy girl, picking her pockets in the street, not blasting her with spell, not leaving her lifeless on the pavement, but simply asking her what she wanted. Talking Victoire, step after step, into coming with her, into joining her house, into finally trusting her. Victoire, Victoire had dared to hope, when she'd known hope cost so much, when it was finally shattered. The lessons of the streets, she'd forgotten them so fast. She made me what I am, Victoire said finally, and I will keep this house together because I have to, because it was the only thing Eugenie had left behind, the legacy that would endure, past the war, past the city tearing itself apart. It sounded grandiloquent and foolish, a child's boast in the face of a storm. Amaranth looked at her, and then back at Eugenie's corpse in the coffin. She said nothing for a while, her brown eyes mild. I don't approve, but I will stand by you regardless. Of course she wouldn't approve, but there was no other way. They'd all come to offer their condolences, of course. The war might have been tearing Paris apart, but the houses still held to old proprietaries, old prerogatives. A never-ending stream of house representatives in swallowtails and top hats, in dresses with tapered waists and mutton sleeves, all bowing gravely to her, wishing her the best in these trying times, dropping a few hints here and there about her youth, her lack of experience, her fundamental weakness, though they were kind enough to never voice the word aloud. All save two. The first Victoire knew of Morningstar's presence was when the air in the room became impossibly light, impossibly tight, even until breathing seemed to hurt and the air in her lungs burned with the force of a firestorm. Then she turned, struggling to compose herself, and watched, shocked still, as he crossed the room to where she stood, the crowd of well-wishers parting in his wake like a flock of scared birds. "'My lady,' he said, bowing to her. He had blue eyes, impossibly clear, the colour of summer skies in a season long gone. Now the city lay under a pall of black clouds, dust and ashes blown from the incessant battles in the streets, and summer followed winter with hardly a pause or a difference. Unlike all other fallen, he wore wings, a metal armature of sharp, cutting edges that moved as he moved, cutting the air to pieces around him, a living weapon, a living fount of power in a city where magic was scarce. My lord, Victoire bowed, though her every instinct screamed at her to abase herself flat on the floor. He was first born among fallen, 
most powerful. He could undo her with a glance or a word. I didn't expect you here. The major houses, Harrier, Aiguillon, Hawthorne, had sent not their heads but their diplomats, just enough to keep up appearances. And here was the head of House Silverspires, the unstated leader of them all, standing in her ballroom with all her other guests, grave and courteous, and speaking to her as an equal. Morningstar smiled, an expression that seemed to illuminate the room. I thought I ought to come myself, to apologise. To, Morningstar shrugged, the wings at his back moving, slicing the air with a sound like the lament of dying souls. We didn't mean to kill her. I have no grudge against House Lazarus. He had nothing against them. House Lazarus wasn't even big enough for him to be aware of. Just Eugenie's lost souls, a collection of the weak and desperate she'd sworn to keep safe. I, Victoire, struggled for words against the presence that seemed to wrap the room around itself. Morningstar continued as if she had not spoken. It was a skirmish that went badly. I assume Harrier will offer their excuses as well? They had, but not in the same way. They were not standing there, not speaking in that voice that turned her innards to jelly, that made her measure irretrievably the distance that separated her from Silver Spires, from Fallen, to whom magic and charisma came effortlessly. A word of advice, Morningstar said finally. He raised a hand, as if to forestall any objections, but Victoire was still struggling to find her voice from where it had fled. You're young and weak, like infant fallen, except without any magic of your own. If you don't show the other houses you're strong, if you don't seize your opportunity to, to do something loud and ruthless, then you'll vanish. We won't, Victoire said, every word a struggle to articulate. We... Monistar smiled brief and wounding, like a knife-stroke across her throat. I've seen it happen. You're not the first house to lose a founder. You might be the first to do so in such peculiar circumstances. The war. It was always there. The battles hadn't stopped, not even for a morning reception. People tearing each other in the streets. The slow toll of the wounded in the dead, Amaranth and Gerard reported to her every week, the dependence of House Lazarus caught in the crossfires. We're not fighting, Victoire said at last. Of course, Eugenie had ideals. Commendable of her, Morningstar said, in a way that implied she'd been young and foolish, and of course she had been. She was mortal, forty years old, whereas Morningstar had been in Paris for centuries. Albeit impractical. Only the strongest or the dead can afford neutrality. Victoire opened her mouth to say that they were strong, to lie, as Amaranth had advised her to, and then met his gaze and found the words shriveling in her throat. Remember, a show of strength, Morningstar said, and his smile seemed to fill the entire world, teeth as sharp as a predator's. And she ached to lean forward, to let him take her, consume her utterly. It wouldn't even hurt much. She wouldn't feel anything more than the grief and worry that was already tearing her apart. And then he eased away, and the effect faded. He was still smiling. He knew what she'd almost done, could read the tension in her calf muscles, the way she'd started leaning forward, as if for a kiss, as if for an offering. He was looking not at her, but at Nerea and Fowl, 
who stood nervously by the buffet, unsure of who to talk to, or what they ought to do. Such youth, Morningstar whispered. It was a dash of cold water down her spine. Amaranth was the only adult fallen in Lazarus. Nerea and Thal were young a few years from their fall, that dangerous age when they fancied themselves adults, but still couldn't fathom enough of people's motivations to sidestep traps before they closed. She moved, hardly aware that she did so, settling herself between Morningstar and the children. "'My dependence,' she said. It was easier, almost, to oppose him for the sake of the house, to forget the pressure against her chest as his attention turned her way again, as his gaze transfixed her like a spear. "'Of course I wouldn't dream of stealing another house's dependence,' Morningstar smiled again, and Victoire fought to remain standing, relaxing her every muscle, bowing her head towards the floor. One might say, however, that by being at such a reception they are quite free to socialise with whomever they wish. Victoire moved then, nodding at what he said to keep up the illusion of politeness, and came to stand by Nerea and Thal. Victoire, Thal asked, smiling, have you seen those dresses? They're so wonderful, Nerea said, her broad face dreamily creased. Out, Victoire said. Morningstar was moving slowly, carefully, amused by her as one would be by an insect. I need you out. We were having fun, Sal protested. Just... Victoire shook her head and saw Amaranth appear as if in answer to her prayers, materialising by her side with a glass of red wine in her hand. Trouble? Amaranth asked. And then her gaze met Morningstar's and she froze. Oh! She shook her head moved slowly, agonisingly slowly, to stand in his path, bowing to him with the stiff formality of her youth, a century or more in her past. Pleased to meet you, my lord. Victoire tore her gaze from Morningstar and focused it on the two fallen. We're not leaving, Thal's voice was petulant. The light below his skin, his innate magic, flickered in and out of focus with every word he spoke. Gerard said we could come. Gerard probably hadn't expected Morningstar. Victoire, is something wrong? Nerea asked. She could send them back to their rooms like disobedient children, but they were past that, weren't they? She wanted only the best for them, and that included giving them the space to grow up. Be careful, Victoire said at last. You've heard about Morningstar. He... he is not your friend. He was free with advice and charm, but he wasn't on their side. Would never be. House Silverspires isn't your friend. Thal was watching Morningstar, engrossed. Nerea was equally engrossed, but not as convinced. He's very powerful, Nerea said grudgingly. And very handsome, Thal said. Nerea's lips pinched, halfway between disapproval and fascination. No doubt, she said wryly. Come on, there's other stuff to look at. Thal threw a regretful glance at Morningstar, who was still deep in conversation with Amaranth. Amaranth's face was fear-frozen, awestruck. Had Victoire's looked that way too? Probably, and all too obvious to anyone with eyes. "'I guess so,' Thal said. He let Nerea drag him to another corner of the room to stare at the stiff countenances of the Hawthorn and Solferino delegates. It wouldn't stop Morningstar, of course, he would approach them again if he hadn't grown bored by then. 
She hadn't had the feeling he was here for more than harmless fun, harmless by his definition, since he cared little what devastation he left in his wake. Breathing hard, Victoire helped herself to a glass of wine from the buffet and took a look at the room. Everyone else was clustered in talks, Gerard, Quentin and Marie, and the laboratory staff keeping a wary eye on the other houses, the more adventurous among her dependents venturing to talk to delegates. No danger there. They would merely make polite talk and not venture much information. She would need to go rescue Amaranth at some point, or have someone else to do it. She... There was someone else at her elbow. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Victoire dressed as if for battle. After all, wasn't this a battle too? Fought on a field without guns, without spells? Eugenie perhaps would have understood if she hadn't turned away from her in disgust. Over a brown shirt with delicate embroideries, she slipped a green silk jacket, green and brown the colours of the house, and a scarf folded across the diagonal so that its pattern of interlinked trees and stags devolved to a jumble of vivid colours. Her skirt was black, spread around her like a pool of darkness, with a wide train that should have required an attendant. Victoire didn't care much for that. She merely gathered the folds in her hands and walked out. Amaranth and Gerard were waiting for her at the door, dressed equally formally. Amaranth in the same cream dress she'd worn in the chapel, Gerard in a swallow's tail and pressed trousers, elegant and severe, the picture of effortless strength. If only it hadn't been a lie. The sounds of battle were muted now, almost inaudible. The fighting moving away from them in that endless, maddeningly cryptic ebb and flow of war that followed no rhyme or reason, and took and took without surcease. The other fight, the war of influence, fought in drawing-rooms and receptions, was not gone either, not as long as a head of house drew breath, not as long as they could still dream of being crowned the winner. On and on through deserted corridors, 
past doors open a fraction, with only a glimmer of faces beyond them, a hint of clustered bodies pressed against the wooden panels. She had ordered the children, the mortal ones, to stay indoors, and the other dependents of the house would not dare to come out. Afraid. And why shouldn't they be? Victoire! Thou had been running, out of breath, his own suit askew on his thin frame, his olive skin flushed, glistening with sweat. Victoire! She said nothing for a moment, stared into his eyes, and then looked away because of the raw fear she saw in them. I wanted... He stopped, then he said, I don't want to go, please! He'd come to her once when he'd broken one of the house's crystal glasses, bringing her the pieces, and looking up to her, bracing himself for a rebuke. Victoire had smiled, and said that it didn't matter, that they had plenty of other glasses. Today she had no such words. She could, but no, she couldn't afford to show him favour. She couldn't afford to lie. If she was found out, the price would be even more terrible than the one she was already paying. You should be with the others, Victoire said gently. His face darkened slowly, as if a door within him was closing forever. Victoire, I'm sorry, she said. And it was a lie, because she couldn't say what she felt. Couldn't put the tearing within her into words. Please, go. As he ran away from her, in utter silence, broken only by the rapid sound of his breathing, as if he was struggling not to cry, as the world around her seemed to bend and waver, seemed to become unbearably sharp, she heard Amaranth speak. Was this how you wanted to be remembered? Victoire shook her head. I don't expect anything. She'd woken up at night, staring at the dark skies above her with a prayer on her lips, with a cry for guidance, and no answer but the growing certainty within her like a shard of broken glass. Forgiveness, perhaps, but it's not necessary. And not hers to give. Never hers to give. Amaranth's lips pursed, but she said nothing. She didn't need to. You're the head of the house. My condolences. For a moment, Victoire thought the speaker was mortal, but then she saw the slight sheen to the skin, the slight cast of the cheekbones, and the way the body rested lightly on the floor, as if yearning for unattainable flight. And Calice, the fallen said, her face creased in a smile. She wore a yellow and white uniform with no insignia. Head of House Shellac. They were a minor house near the southeast of Paris, beleaguered and stretched thin. Calice's weary condolences sounded sincere in a way that Victoire hadn't heard since the beginning of the reception. Thank you, Victoire said. She was still watching Amaranth talk to Morningstar, and the way those closest to their conversation would stop and turn to stare at Morningstar. He's the centre of attention, isn't he? Calice sounded mildly amused. As usual. Did he speak to you? For a while, Victoire said warily. If you don't show the other houses that you're strong, if you don't seize the opportunity to do something loud and ruthless, then you'll vanish. Calice smiled again. She reached for a canapé from the buffet, staring at the pâté spread on rye bread, as if she knew every coin this had cost, every hour of trying to disguise the paltry food reserves in the kitchen. He means well. He genuinely doesn't care whether you rise or fall. But he's forgotten what it means to be powerless. Forgotten? 
Fair point. Calice swallowed her canopy in one gulp. He's never known. And do you? In spite of herself, Victoire was amused. Are you queuing to give me advice as well? Calice shrugged. I know what it is to be at the bottom of the heap, to be small and disregarded. But no, I won't give you advice if that's not what you want. She stared again at the walls around them, the paint barely dry, the candles thin, placed so it wouldn't be obvious they could only afford a few. Just company, for the evening. With no strings attached, Victoire couldn't help it. I'm sorry, it's just that everyone has come here to mock or gain advantage, or both. Calice smiled again. Consider it kinship. And my desire to have a quiet evening that's not about politics for once. Or the war, she grimaced. You're doing a good job, honestly. I wish I was, Victoire said. She knew they were all watching her, wondering when she would finally fail, when they could take Lazarus apart for scraps. Except Morningstar. Calice was right. He probably didn't care one way or another. The only wealth of this house is our dependence, and it feels like a case of too many mouths to feed. Fallen magic, Calice said with a shrug. It's wealth, of a sort. But it couldn't create food, or even heal the gravely wounded. It couldn't give them a future, keep them together against the depredations of the other houses, the ones busy killing each other in the streets, the ones who hungered only for power, and for weapons they could use to destroy each other. I just want us to be safe, Victoire said. Eugenie's mad dream, the one they'd all believed in, the only thought that drove her now. The house depended on her, and all she could see ahead of her was failure. Calice's face was dark. In a time of war, safety might be too much to ask for. I wish... Calice picked up a champagne glass, twirled it between her fingers. Light spread beneath her fingertips, so that for a moment the beverage seemed liquid gold. No, never mind. We weren't given peace, and we're not the ones with the power to stop any of it. Have you... There was no polite way to ask this, but this had gone beyond politeness after all. Have you lost many people? Too many. Calice sipped at the champagne, watching the groups drift across the room. Bodies is the toll we pay, isn't it? Our only wealth. Her voice was bitter. Graveyards and alchemist laboratories to strip every scrap of fallen magic from their corpses and put it into service again. But we're alive. We still have a place in the order of the city. Whereas Lazarus, wounded and leaderless, had none. Calice must have seen Victoire's face. She shook her head sadly. You'll find a way, she said. It's just a matter of time. Thank you, Victoire said. She didn't have time, and they both knew it. There were soldiers outside fighting each other, and the moment the illusion dropped, the moment other houses realised that Lazarus had nothing to protect them, nothing to keep them together, that conquering them would be as easy as punching through paper, then they were gone and all the other houses would either join in or look the other way. Calice set her glass aside. 
"'If you'll excuse me,' she said, grimacing, "'my master's call.' One of the Hawthorne delegates, a thin, dapper fallen with horn-rimmed glasses and the lean face of a hunting-hound, was looking straight at her. Masters. Of course she had alliances. Of course she wasn't neutral. No one could afford to be, Morningstar had said. Only the strong. Calice was already gone. Victoire saw her bow down to the fallen and then start talking to him animatedly. The fallen made a small, stabbing gesture with one hand, and Calice moved closer, bending her head to listen to him. Victoire looked for Morningstar and found him at the centre of a little court, five or six members of different houses, standing entranced by him like moths in candlelight, scarcely aware they would burn alive when the flame became too intense. If you don't show the other houses that you're strong. A show of strength. But strength was for the strong, wasn't it? And they didn't have anything, any wealth, any power, anything that would be convincing. Calice was right. Morningstar moved in a wholly different world, and even his advice, well meant as it was, was for those in his wake, the powerful, the victors. A show of strength. She didn't have anything, except, except the wealth of Lazarus. Slowly, as if in a trance, Victoire found herself walking back towards Morningstar, found the crowd parting for her, the hounds eagerly baying for blood, eagerly waiting to see her throw herself again and again at the walls of her cage. He watched her come closer, his face grave, his courtiers scattered. Silence surrounded them until it seemed they were the only two people in the room. "'We need to talk,' Victoire said, aghast at her own temerity. "'In private.' "'Of course,' Morningstar said, and his smile seemed to illuminate the entire room until everything was drowned in its cold, merciless radiance. He was waiting for her at the entrance to House Lazarus, his fair hair ruffled by the wind, his metal wings casting a long, blurred shadow on the steps. Lady Victoire, what a pleasure! His presence was like a storm, like wildfire. She wanted to walk closer, to be taken apart piece by piece, remade into one of his weapons, to feel that gaze on her, flaying layer after layer of skin with exquisite pain. Except, of course, that she held no interest for him. Not today. My lord, she said, bowing, as Calice had bowed to the delicate of House Hawthorne. Shall we? Morningstar said. They were all gathered below in the courtyard, before the house, all her youngest fallen, her children, Eugenie's children, Nerea and Thau, Mavadeus and Sativa, Lucine and Celeste, and Zeni and Kyla, all the names in her nightmares, a litany of loss, eight of them, all so young, so achingly naive, like Nerea, like Thau, unaware of all the ways the world can reach out and wound them, again and again, in places they didn't even know existed. I can't, Victoire started. Amaranth crushed her hand, and the words shriveled in her throat. She could read Amaranth's expression. She might disapprove of the decision, but she would die before she allowed Victoire to show weakness. Amaranth didn't understand, not really, that it was too late, that what had been required all along wasn't a show of strength, 
but a show of weakness. Something that showed them as small and insignificant and unworthy of the other house's attention. She didn't understand that it was a surrender. Half, Victoire said slowly, carefully, her voice a croak. Of course, Morningstar said. You be kind to them, she wanted to say, and he must have guessed at what she would say because he smiled. That will no longer be your concern, Lady Victoire. I'll do as I please. The wealth of the house. Not its money, or its influence, or the spells that might have mastered, but its children, its fallen children. Victoire bowed gravely to Morningstar and stopped halfway down the stairs. She watched him pace before the lines of young fallen, watched them flinch at first and then bend towards him, caught in the maelstrom of his presence. Thou's face glazed, frozen in fear, Nerea holding herself straight, playing with her rings to hide the tremor in her hands. Mavidea smiling, as if unaware of the tension in the air. But he had to. Half. The half that Morningstar judged fit for service. The young, the vulnerable, the ones he could mould as he wished. And she didn't even know what he was going to use them for. She didn't even know if he was going to take them apart for their magic. Amaranth was waiting behind her, silent, disapproving. Victoire had to. She had to walk behind Morningstar to show that it was her decision too, to look them in the eye as they were weighed and labelled like meat at a market. She owed them that, at the least. Was this how you wanted to be remembered? Amaranth had asked. And she had no good answer. Had never had any, because there had been no other choice. Because there was a price to pay to be safe a show of weakness to be made, rolling over like a dog offering itself for slaughter, because even the ones who weren't chosen and dragged the silver spires would remember, now and forever, that they had stood in line before the house, that Morning Star had prowled before them and passed them over, that Victoire had let it happen, and no amount of explanations and justifications, no matter how right she was in the end, would erase that. There were no excuses she could offer to the sacrificed. We will survive, she said, to Amaranth, to Thau, to the darkened skies above her, to whatever ghosts might be watching her. The house will survive. It was paltry reassurance, a thin comfort that had nothing of warmth, but it was all she had, all she could cling to against the encroaching darkness, against the choices of war. Slowly, deliberately, as ramrod straight as a queen in her own country, Victoire gathered the folds of her skirt and descended the steps towards the courtyard to walk beside Morningstar, to stand before her children in that frozen instant before she lost them forever. Aliette de Baudard lives and works in Paris, where she has a day job as a systems engineer. In her spare time, she writes speculative fiction. She's won two Nebula Awards, a Locus Award and a British Science Fiction Award. This is set in the devastated Paris of her novel, The House of Shattered Wings, which is published by Golance in the UK and Rock Books in the US.
Loyal fans will remember that Aliette helped launch Farfetched Fables with her story In the Age of Iron and Ashes, way back in our special debut episode. We're always happy to have her for a return engagement. If you haven't heard that story, go back into the archives, you'll love it. We're also looking forward to more Dominion of the Fallen stories in the future. Now, please remember, everybody, that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you really cannot sell it, and you have to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators, I'm afraid to say, will fall from grace. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. I'm off to go and deal with a recalcitrant bicycle wheel, or perhaps pour myself a drink so that I don't have to. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.